0: I am just delighted to be here today with Pastor Phil Eubank of Menlo Church in the Bay Area, California. And uh, Pastor Eubank has been in ministry for 20 years, and this is my first time having an opportunity to meet him, so I'm really excited about today. And I had heard a, a message that, a series of messages that the church did back in, uh, I, w- I want to say well, a few months ago, about this idea of historic creationism. And so many of the messages seem to overlap with the things that we've been hearing from Jordan Peterson and Tom Holland and um, and many of the other people that have been of interest in this little corner of the internet. So I wanted to hear from uh, Pastor Phil and, and maybe have you tell your life story first, and then we can talk about the great story.
1: Sure, of course. Yeah. And uh, I said this to you, Karen. Before we were recording, but I want to let everybody know I will self admittedly uh, identify as the least intelligent person to ever be on this. So, if you're thinking should I skip today, I'm really smart. The answer <laughs> might be yes. So, <laughs> let that be my sales pitch for you to keep listening. Uh, yeah. So I grew up outside of Cleveland. This was where I uh, kind of spent a lot of my upbringing years. A uh, pretty unique kind of family of origin story, particularly for a pastor grew up with, um, I was the youngest of four, uh, and I, um, navigated abuse, uh, as a kid, primarily from my dad. Uh, and then my brother, when I was eight and he was 16, ran away from home to escape that abuse for 15 years. We thought he died. Um, and I eventually felt called to ministry, uh, went to a Bible college, started seminary. And then my brother turns out was serving a lifetime sentence for international drug trafficking. And uh, my dad prayed at that time, who was not a Christian. Um, he prayed, Hey, God, would you just let me know what happened to James before I die? And then he gets out of uh, the hospital and uh, would never have been home. He was like super workaholic, traveling all the time, but was at home recovering. And my brother had gotten out on a technicality from prison. And after, 15 years decided to call my house back in Ohio. And so, uh, we had this crazy reunion. It was amazing. I start ministry families are sort of, our family is sort of putting the pieces back together, their relationship. Um, yeah, it was, it was amazing. It was a version of restoration and reconciliation where, um, they had every reason to not want to know each other. And they just exhibited a ton of grace to each other is beautiful. Uh, and so, yeah, it was, Really special. Been uh, in ministry. Okay, slow
0: down a little bit because yeah, mm-hmm. that was a big.
1: I know story that I know. went
0: by very fast. So mm-hmm. I want to go back. So so when you're when you're eight years old, your brother runs away from home because there's a lot of abuse in the home. Somehow between then and uh, when you finish high school, or somewhere in there, you you heard the gospel you became a christian when when did all that happen and yeah so i became um, and how were your parents involved in that or not involved in that
1: yeah of course so i became a christian when i was six uh and that was really because of the influence of my mom my mom was a first generation american russian jew uh raised in southern california by her uh jewish parents and then became a christian like in her early 20s and then sort of became the spiritual mentor of my life till she just passed away earlier this year actually um and kind of through my childhood that was always like my mom and church were like the safe places for me all of us as siblings as the youngest of four were uh, welcome to go to church with her but my siblings basically used my dad not going as an excuse to not go themselves Um, and I just felt pretty young, like, Hey, there's something here for me. And then I felt called to ministry at, uh, eight years old. And so, uh, yeah, it's not lost on me that that's the same year my brother left. Um, but yeah, that, that all sort of like rolled up to my brother leaving. And then in my teens, I did a a bunch of different stuff, uh, played football until I blew my knees out and then started doing theater, uh, and then started preaching regularly uh, as a kid in services, which I was way too young and inexperienced to be given the opportunity to do, but that didn't stop them and it didn't stop me. Uh, and then I uh, went to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago for undergrad. That's where I met my wife, Alyssa. My,
0: my oldest daughter went there too. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so I've visited many times and, and yeah, yeah. greatly enjoyed Founders Week there. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, Yeah.
1: yeah really special, super special place. I had uh, grown up in all public schools, and so it was really fun for me. Like, I just did never experience Christian education. So there were lots of folks that have different experiences at a Christian school, and it's not perfect, but for me, I think it was just really, really transformative uh, to be in a community that you had sort of a common framework of the way you thought about the world and um even just the way you could incorporate practices like worship and prayer and bible study way more regularly uh than was easy to do when i was younger so was well, big...
0: one one of the ironic things is here you're sitting with a beard and when when my daughter was there my older I daughter couldn't have um, it. yeah was there in the um uh late 80s yeah and uh, at that time, the guys couldn't have beards or sideburns or hair below their collar or. Um,
1: yeah, most of that was still. Girls, in, yeah, yeah most girls of that was, had
0: to follow certain. They couldn't go to movies. It yeah, was, yeah. Uh,
1: most of that was still in place when I was there. You could go to movie. There was like weird legalistic things about it. Like you could go to a movie if you stayed at someone else's house that night or something. It was a silly, you know, like we're talking about fundamentalist Christianity from 100 years ago still sort of showing up in. So
0: how did you deal with that? When you were there, did it feel okay? And then since then you've changed or when you were there, did you chafe at that a little bit? And what do you think about that now theologically?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I never really, for me, I never, uh, I never saw it as like a, this is what's being advocated for my life. Uh, I always viewed it through the lens of Moody was a special place and I was in it for a set period of time. And uh, if folks don't know this, it's a school that's right in the heart of Chicago. It's really built for you to go into ministry and DL Moody, he founded it uh, like kind of one of his core convictions was I want people to be able to go into ministry uh, that feel called to it without money being a factor. And for me, like I didn't want to go to a private, Uh, Christian liberal arts school, amass a ton of debt and stop doing ministry. I've been doing ministry since I was a kid uh, and, you know, like random suburban area, disconnected campus that feels like it's in the middle of nowhere. It was going to be way more difficult to do that. And so it allowed me to continue to do ministry and a really unique wrinkle of Moody is that donors from around the world pay your tuition. So when I was there for every one of us that was at the school going, there were seven people that they would have said yes to if they had money and space and they didn't. And so there was this sort of uh responsibility that you felt, this stewardship that you felt to say, um, hey, I'm there, there's other people that would love my spot. I'm here and I have a responsibility to the, the investment that's being made in me. Um, so yeah, I mean, there are times that. The The rules are annoying for sure, uh, but I also think that they were really there. I think that it was like the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. The letter of the law got out of hand at times, and it felt unnecessary and overbearing. But I think the spirit of the law was like, how do we help students focus? And mm-hmm. uh, and so it it did for me. It was, it was really helpful. I uh, I had and have a learning disability, a reading disability, and severe dyslexia. And so, um, you know, school for me in, uh, high school was really hard. Uh, it just took a ton out of me to be successful and effective in an education environment. Um, and so I think it was, um, super, super helpful that those distractions weren't there for me. I know for other students, um, that that's different. Their story about it is different, but that's the way I chose to see it.
0: Yeah. That's really interesting that you bring that up that way, because, In general, when people talk about, um, you know, a lot of the celebrity atheists that talk about God, they always want to talk about, you know, how he's so cruel or so restrictive, or you know, if there is a God, he's this way and everything. And and I think every single one of those things boils down to you're looking through the wrong lens. Because if you look through the lens of love and purpose, and right. every single one of those stories makes a completely different sense. Yeah,
1: well, and I I think uh, I used a quote from Tim Keller two weeks ago, maybe, uh, that's, you know, pastor in New York City, passed away recently, really kind of a legend. And he makes the statement, as Christians, we often want to look at the Bible and see what we feel like we need to reject um, or what we want to disagree with. Uh, but really the, the better set of lenses is to read the Bible and say, Hey, what are some things that I need to reject in me? What are some things that need to change about me? Uh, and I think it's, you know, it's fundamentally, if I worship a God that I never disagree with, I'm not really worshiping any other God, but myself. And, uh, I think those are hard mirrors to look at, you know, we don't want that. We, we want a God that submits to us because we live in a culture that says that's the standard. Um, but I don't think it's healthy. I also don't think it's true. And so, uh, I get to choose to submit to a God that I believe is real and true and authoritative, uh, or not. And we all get the same choice.
0: So you became a Christian when you were six. And um, through all the years of ministry, uh, training and everything, and then going into ministry and doing ministry, have you ever hit a patch where you felt yourself like deconstructing, going into some, some doubt, or um, is there anything about your personal experience that can help you understand all the people that are deconstructing right now?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think uh, on some level uh, I-, I think that I have, so I did ministry after grad school. I did ministry in Seattle for eight years and then a very unchurched community in Colorado for seven years. And then now in the Bay area. So I think my context has always been sort of the, the ceiling, the best possible scenario is the religiously skeptical. (laughs) That's like the, we're winning with them. And a lot of times it's people who uh, either are not considering faith at all, or people who have deconstructed a uh, kind of childhood faith. Um, and I think for me personally, uh, there were certainly times. You know, you grew up in an abusive home, and there are times that you're going, uh, God, how could you do this? How could you let this happen? You know, and and there's there's just no honest person I think that's going to go through something like that and not regularly reevaluate. Hey, is this the God that I really believe in? Is this the truth that I'm really going to hold to? Uh, for me personally, for whatever reason, I think it's just grace. Uh, I've never wrestled with does this mean that God isn't real. Um, you know, I know that for some people that's, that's a very genuine, uh, struggle and I want to be sensitive to that. Uh, I I think for me, it was a little bit more, um, yeah, I, I think it was just a little bit more, God, how could you, and how would you use it rather than do you exist at all? Uh, I did struggle a little bit. I think, uh, In undergrad, no one had ever really talked to me about soteriology. And so if you're unfamiliar, that's kind of the theological category of how God saves people. Uh, And there are two main camps in that. One is called Arminianism, which is really centered on free will. And one is Reformed uh, theology or Calvinism. And that centers more on God's sovereignty. And and I think an uh, an honest theologian will tell you that there's a tension in the scriptures between those things. Uh, But I had really grown up without knowing any of the categories and kind of just living into a more Arminian view. Uh, And then in Bible college, I was just exposed to a lot more of the scriptures, and I was studying books like Romans very intently and deeply. And I had kind of a crisis of faith of not does God exist like this, but can I love a God like this? If, if, If Reformed theology is actually something that I feel like is true and best represented in the scriptures, which I do. Uh, what does that mean for me? And so that that was probably the closest for me of kind of a crisis of faith. Of as my core theology is changing, uh, what does it look like for me to pursue a God uh, that I I'm realizing that I, I had big gaps in the middle of. So, and I and I think if we're honest, um, most of what we call deconstruction today, for the history of church was called uh, spiritual formation or discipleship. And uh, I think that we just live in a day where Uh, How we are is more and more being shaped to answer the question of who you are Uh, and what idolatry was in the Old Testament with statues. Now, idolatry is identity. And so I'm trying to grab a group. I'm trying to grab an an identity group. And so like this kind of spiritual deconstructing, progressive Christian, this label in my, in my cultural moment, I think can sometimes make us feel safe. Oh, I found a label. I found a community and now I'm done. Well, we're never done. God's still working on us. And so I think the best thing we can do if you're experiencing that, or the best thing you can do, if you know someone that you care about who's experiencing that is just don't give up on the relationship, continue to be there through the ups and the downs continue to journey with them Um, because a year from now it's going to be different and five years from now, it's going to be different. And uh, as long as God gives you the chance to have breath in your lungs and a relationship with them, continue to walk with them. And if that's you, continue to walk with people who care about you, continue to walk with people who maybe you don't see the same thing theologically that they do anymore. Um, But even though our culture says, surround yourself only with people who agree with you, uh, I would say buck that trend, be somebody that uh, continues to relate to people who don't see eye to eye on everything.
0: Yeah. I think, I think there's this whole tendency in our modern era and I don't exactly know how that happened that um, time has taken on a different perspective hmm. because there was a time when uh, people could take the long view. Actually, I guess, I guess it has to do with technology because when you, when you can't, you have to take the long view when you plant a crop and it's not going to come to harvest for three or four months, or when you plant a garden and it's not going to come to its full beauty for many years, um, but we, we tend to think that every problem has to be solved right now. Every experience has to be um, taken care of right now. And to get the idea that God is not working on the right now, he's working on the whole picture all the time. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think oh. that it is, It is. we are, um, you know, I just think that we struggle, I think through a sense of kind of cultural pride sometimes Um, sometimes it's called recency bias or just historic hubris that uh, we assume we are the smartest, most evolved version of humanity that has ever existed. And spoiler alert, every version of humanity has thought that, but it has not been true of every version of humanity. And so I think a level of introspection to say not everything that's in the cultural water, that's in sort of the social stew of 2023 is altruistically positive. Not all of it is up and to the right. And if I can understand that, because, because I think we think, well, will I serve the God in the Bible? Will I believe the God of the Bible or will I reject the God? That's actually not the choice. Uh, The choice is, will I be formed by the gods of the present age or will I be formed by the God of all ages? And uh, I, I mean, obviously I'm a pastor saying that. So of course I believe that. Um, But I I do think this idea that, um, well, it's, you know, Phil, don't you realize what year it is? How could you possibly believe that? I might uh, suggest that there are times throughout human history I could go back to, and people would be very confident of their worldviews and positions because of the year it was. And it turns out they were very, very incorrect.
0: Well, so let's get onto this thing of this, um, this idea of the great story. Um, When you did the series of messages about historic creationism, First of all, why did you decide to have the church uh, go through that series? And then um, I guess one of my curiosities is because if many of the teaching pastors took part in that series, was that something that you laid out ahead of time with everybody and you sort of all agreed on what direction you were going to go or did each pastor take a, um, a section and then just come up with their own you know, perspective on it or how did that work? Because it was really so all beautifully woven together.
1: <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. I think, uh, to a certain extent, you know, every church is a little bit different about this. We have a unique model where our teaching team teaches at one location and then that location gets broadcast to other locations. Uh, so I know that like, as people think about church, that may not be the the mental map that they have for what we're talking about, but that's the way it works at Menlo. Um, and because of that, I think. We try to work really hard to set up all of the campuses of Menlo uh, to be successful and have the very best conversation. So we map out our teachings typically eight to 12 months ahead. And so we're working usually with a team of eight to 10 people from our team. And we're asking big questions like, hey, what should we be talking about over the course of this year? Uh, In church history, there was a liturgical church calendar. And in that liturgical church calendar, you would say, hey, it's fall. This is what we teach in the fall. Hey, that's getting near Christmas. Here's what we do at Advent. You know, we're getting to Easter. Here's what we do during Lent. Like those are all kind of church calendar things. So we don't necessarily follow those exactly to the T, although we do to a certain extent, we're pretty serious about About Lent around here, and we do a lot around Advent. But there are also, I would say, kind of a modern liturgy. So, as you're building that um, in the summertime, one of the things we try to think through is we just know that a lot of people are going to be inconsistent in their attendance. And so, we want to do something that has kind of staying power that people can go watch later and still have has relevance we also want to teach something that if you miss a week or two and then you come back it doesn't feel like you've missed the thread of the whole series um and usually those series are longer and so uh yeah so we did a a series called the rest of the story and the core principle uh was basically what does it look like for me to graduate beyond childlike faith um i want i want to grow in my faith uh, so that I, that I grow up with it rather than grow out of it. And that means that some of the ways we learn, we talked about flannel graph faith, right? If you grew up in church, you may remember the flannel graph stories of the way you learned passages from the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. Um, and that was great. That's exactly how we should have learned about it at the time. But nobody went back later and was like, hey, There are some like really big implications of this. And you don't have to understand this exclusively through the lens of a four-year-old learning it in Sunday school. And uh, if you don't say that, I think what it can feel like is, well, if I ever see it differently than this, then I guess I don't get to believe. And really helping people to understand um, that if you walked away from your faith for anything other than the person and work of Jesus, you may have walked away unnecessarily because while the Bible is the authority of our faith, It is not the foundation. The resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of the Christian faith. It has been for 2000 years. And so, um, you know, we looked at what are some of the major kind of conversations where uh, this shows up. And certainly one of the leading conversations is the way we think about the origins of the world. And so, you know, it gets pitted as, are you just that closed-minded bigot that believes that God did this in six days, took a day to rest, that the earth is 4,000 years old, Or are you a smart person? And of course you think about evolution and the big bang and all that stuff and helping people to understand. First of all, there's a way bigger spectrum than just those two reductionistic viewpoints. Um, And there's followers of Jesus, like faithful followers of Jesus that hold to different views on this conversation. This is an area where we can find unity while not having to strive for uniformity.
0: And so, did you have a particular lens through which you uh, developed this did I mean, did you have I think you mentioned before we got on the air that there was a particular book that um, talks about this topic of historic creationism. and yeah, uh,
1: yeah, so I mean, one of the ways that I would say I just like think about teaching in general is, I really want to, um, more than telling people what to think, I want to teach people how to think. And so I'll tell you what I think and what I believe and what my position on a particular subject is. Uh, but especially if it's one of these areas where we kind of have closed-handed stuff, this is non-negotiable and open-handed stuff. Where it's open-handed stuff, man, I want you to be able to pursue what what you believe. And so there's a couple resources. One actually is a is a is uh, actually a, a series of books called the four views. They look like that right there. Uh, so this is a helpful book. It's not just available for this particular, uh, conversation. You can find it for lots of different stuff, but again, it, it just, I think helps break down the polarities and the people that write in it are writing, uh, essays, uh, and they're the leaders in all the views. So they're not, they're not, it's just not one author trying to straw man three views and then tell you, why uh they think it's like this is the best view and then they respond to one another's essays and so we'll give some critical feedback uh and then the but book could that... could
0: we could we um for the people who are listening on podcast and oh, not doing sure. the youtube let's give the title and the authors
1: yeah yeah so uh this book's called four views which is the series called the four views series four views on creation evolution and intelligent design and uh the contributors are Ken Ham Hugh Ross Deborah Harsman, and Stephen uh, Meyer are the four authors there. So uh, that one's really helpful. And then a book uh, that I referenced as well is a book called Genesis Unbound uh, by John Salehammer. And I referenced um, a more recent view on creationism called historic creationism, that he has really been the leading voice uh, in the conversation, big Old Testament theologian guy. Um, and so I think, yeah, just uh, I, I, it offers one more thing to think about as it relates to how do I take the scripture seriously? How do I reconcile that with scientific discovery? Um, you know, I, I I don't want to say no to either one of those things, you know, and I don't think you have to as a Christian. I think that scientific science oftentimes can be how God does something. The scripture can often say what he did. And, um, I think, uh, I had a friend teaching just recently, he said, you know, science is God showing his work. And I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's entirely, uh, entirely possible for all of us, no matter our line of work, no matter our expertise, uh, I think the Bible can hold up. Um, and I think we, we have to be careful not to pit it against uh, scholarship or scientific discovery.
0: Yeah. As some people say, um, well, one of the things I, I like about what Jordan Peterson says is that when people ask him, is the Bible true? He says, the Bible is truer than true because it's what, what is always true. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Because every time you read a story in the Bible, if, if you read it carefully, you can see that it, it's like this fractal thing that comes out into all of history and, and into your daily life. And, um,
1: uh, well, and I did a, I did a talk just a couple of weeks ago called, uh, is the Bible reliable as a part of our series, explore God. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of times we bring a level of skepticism to the Bible, whether we grew up in church or not, because our view of the Bible is overly simplistic, right? It's either, um, you know, a book of fairy tales written by a homophobic, bigoted, warmongering God, or it's a magic spell book. And like, <laughs> I think uh, understanding that the Bible is not a book, actually, it's a library of 66 books written by dozens of people over the course of thousands of years. And to be able to understand that in the midst of that are different genres, you have historic narrative, you have poetry, you have apocalyptic literature, you have um, uh, letters, all those things. I think when we understand, okay, just like any other book that I would be showing up to and going, how am I supposed to read? You read a nonfiction book different than you read a scientific textbook. Uh, you read a book of poetry different than you would read um. Uh, a newspaper describing the events of the day. And the Bible really does have all of those genres. And when we understand it, I think we can understand it in a context where we go, okay, I understand not everything that the Bible describes is even God prescribing it that way. Sometimes it's God describing uh, the way that things were in a broken world in times of deep atrocities. Uh, And we bring 21st century lenses to it. And we say, well, why would God do it this way? Well, part of it is it wasn't functioning in a 21st century Western democracy. And so I I just think that, again, we have to, we have to constantly check ourselves against our own sort of recency bias that we bring to it.
0: Well, so um, one of the things that is curious to me is that you said you're 40 years old.
1: That's right. Recently.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Recently. Yeah. Just just recently, 40 years old. So that's a big hump to get over. Um, And, and you've, been brought into a, a very um well and this may be my bay area bias but but i think this is a difficult environment and then you've come into uh, a sprawling church uh, with many campuses and been given this huge responsibility and why do you think you were the one that was chosen because i know that the uh, the search committee looked for two years to yeah. find somebody to come here They
1: got desperate. That's why I'm here. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. To be honest, I think uh, some of that is probably providential. Like I won't know till the other side of eternity. Um, I think that uh, the conversation with the team that was doing the search at Menlo, I was pretty upfront. Like I, I wasn't looking to go anywhere. We loved our church, had great community, good relationships. Uh, The firm that was, and if you're not a church person and you're listening to this or watching this, this is all going to sound weird. So I apologize. But there was a search firm that was kind of helping Menlo find who was next. Uh, The president of that search firm cold called me and said, hey, would you have a conversation? And I was like, oh, I think you have the wrong phone number. This can't possibly be for me. Um, And I think uh, it was a discovery process where because I thought someday they would just pick up the phone and be like, oh, like we realized you're not a big deal at all. And we are, so we're going to move on. And I would have been like, totally get it. Uh, but I think because of that, I was able to be very honest about who I was, uh, how I lead and then just talk about, okay, you know, this probably isn't going to be me It's somebody else, but if I was at Menlo, this is what I do. And I just kind of gave it away. I just told them what I would do. Uh, and I think it allowed us to be really honest and clear with each other and then give God a chance in the meantime to, Uh, you know, some of it is what can you do? Like, what are your core competencies? But I think some of it's just cultural fit. Like, do you like this group of people? Do they like you? Do you want to live life and do ministry together? And so over the course of five or six months, I think uh, there was just a a, a tremendous level of affection for one another, a great level of of alignment about the way we saw the future. And then on our side, just a bunch of uh, sort of external circumstances that were confirming uh, that it was the path that God was taking us on. So Um, Yeah, I I think that the heart of the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, high tech, intellectually honest, rigorous pursuit of orthodox faith, like those are all things that I've been passionate about my whole life. And so to a certain extent now, 10 months in, even with challenges and hard things to deal with, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, God used the last 40 years to prepare me for the next season here at Menlo. And
0: you have a wife and four children, is that right?
1: That's right. Yeah. So, and, my wife and how
0: has it been for them to adjust to this new environment?
1: Good. I mean, this fall, we've been here since January, and this fall has definitely felt the most normal. We had the kids stay home and we did like homeschooling, which we'd never done before in the spring to help in the transition. Uh, and then in the uh, fall, three of the four kind of went back to more traditional school environments. Uh, and our oldest loved um, homeschool. He's a uh, really high functioning, brilliant, but he's on the spectrum. And I think he always wrestled with, uh, kids at school that were just middle school kids doing things that middle school kids would do. He has such a high justice barometer. That was really hard for him. Um, and then, uh, I think the, honestly, it was just going too slow for him. So he's, uh, he's doing great and finding community here. The rest of them are doing the same. So, uh, th- yeah, this fall, I think has, has helped find a sweet spot for them.
0: Really glad to hear that because I can imagine. I mean, it's it's a huge adjustment. I mean, if nothing else, just the sticker shock of everything that around here is just so much more expensive. Gasoline.
1: It is. is (laughs) Well, we drive two electric cars. That helps. But uh, (laughs) but I do think yeah. When you talk to people that don't live around, especially if I talk to friends in the Midwest, but even Colorado, I'm like just double or triple the cost of everything that's what it all costs here so yeah uh, that is that is definitely something to get used to and you just kind of go hey we're going to make different choices and different decisions as a family and uh if we feel called to live here and do ministry here there's lots of places that god could have called us to and they all bring challenges and so this is just one of those challenges here
0: yeah yeah for sure well so what books are you reading lately
1: it's a great question. Uh so I finished for a series uh very recently uh, a book called uh How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Kimball. Um it's a really helpful book um that we were kind of work I was working through it as a part of the prep content for um uh Explore God that we just finished. That was extremely helpful. Um and it's it's just all the ways that we Kind of all the all the stereotypes that we have about the Bible and how we can, I think, with integrity, read the Bible and understand them. Um, I'm about done with a book called uh, "The Great Dechurching," written by uh, some researchers that are looking at the overall trends in America uh, to see why we're watching such a precipitous decline. Basically, from 1935 to about 2000, uh, let's call it 70 percent of Americans would identify as Christian and go to church. Uh, that number in the last 20 years has dropped at least 25%. Um, and that like, we've just never seen anything like that in American history. And so what are the reasons for that? Like I bring assumptions to it. Um, but I think they're, they've done some good work to identify what are some of the leading causes for that. And then from a pastoral perspective, how can churches best position themselves to care for their communities in that new world? Um, and then uh, I f- did a couple books. Most recently, finished a book called "The Reappearing Church" by Mark Sayers that was really helpful. And then there's a book not not a Christian book, uh, just a book book, but a book called "The Air We Breathe" uh, by Glenn Scrivener, um, and it's oh, about yeah.
0: how, he's wonderful. He's yeah, wonderful. yeah, it's a, it's yeah. about
1: how we sort of whether we realize it or not, like the influence of Christianity over the last two thousand years. It's everywhere, like so much that we take for granted um, it's like woven into our reality. So, uh, those are some that have been more recent.
0: Yeah. Glenn is, Glenn is fantastic. (laughs) He's, he's been on here before and we had a terrific conversation, but, um, he also has written a couple of wonderful, I guess you'd call them devotionals. Um, little, little something for each day from, um, a passage of scripture and he starts at the book of Genesis and just goes through and he has a wonderful perspective on things.
1: That's great. Well, one of the other books I'll mention too that I just found to be extremely helpful this year uh, is the book, the coddling of the American mind. Uh, Again, not a Christian book. I actually, the authors are kind of like center and political left in their political leanings. Uh, But they're just identifying, I think, in a very intellectually honest way. They did an article in the Atlantic that kind of took off, And then they're trying to identify what are some of the fault lines that we're feeling in culture right now? Um, Why are we feeling them the way that we are? And like, what's the, where are we seeing that kind of fray at the edges? Um, And at least for me, it gave language to some of what I was feeling, especially on the other side of COVID.
0: One of the things that I've always appreciated about Menlo is that no matter what happens with the political culture wars, Menlo has sort of woven a a path to not fall into either side. And, sure. um, and I noticed that you have carried on that tradition as well.
1: Hey, I'm very that, passionate is that
0: about that the way you were, have always been in your ministry? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. That got me in trouble during COVID, right? Because I would say, hey, we, we're, as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, we should view our entire life, including and especially our politics, through the lens of our faith, not the other way around. And uh, we get in trouble when we take um, when we take our national identity, or we take our political identity, and that becomes the guiding framework of our life. And now I'm reinterpreting my faith. I'm reinterpreting the Bible. I'm reinterpreting Jesus, and I'm saying the thing that's unshakable about me has to be my political ideologies. No, 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 no. Uh, our theology should shape all of our ideologies. And so, yeah, that's that's been a passion point for me. And then uh, I think, in Menlo, you're right. There has been this really. Uh, rich history of making sure people know at menlo we have people that are uh, left right and center politically that um you know there no political party in america has the moral high ground as it relates to scriptural understandings of things right we can go hey what does it look like to dive into a nuanced and thoughtful conversation around life with the conversation of on one side kind of this polarity between the um dignity of those in poverty. And on the other side, the rights of the unborn, um, you have that spectrum basically about every subject. And so when we say, well, you know, Jesus would have voted, Jesus would have done. I, I just think we should be far more humble um, in the way that we understand that and understanding that like my personal faith should be the thing informing how I vote. I think you should vote. Um, but I think we it, it's, it's way more complex Uh, than two political parties want to make it seem.
0: And so you mentioned that your theology should inform um, your life rather than your ideology. And on um, on the topic of theology, one of the things that I have talked with a lot of people about on this channel is there seems to be a hunger amongst many of the young people coming into the church because there are young people coming into the church. And particularly, I think there's a large group of young men who have become interested in Christ and become interested in uh, becoming a part of a church. But they're very hungry for some kind of liturgy. And one of the things that I noticed that we sort of don't have at Menlo and have never really had is a kind of um, liturgical approach to the worship service. Is that anything that you ever think about? like having a a reading and response or maybe having more in the terms of reading scriptures in the service or, or. I uh, I think
1: those are always things that, you know, for, when we kind of think about like a ministry tool belt, right, I would argue that every experience you have, the moment you do it once, it's liturgy, right? Like we have a liturgy. At Menlo, our liturgy is often two or three songs, announcements, a message, and a song. That's our liturgy. Uh, It may at times include reciting the Lord's Prayer. It may at times include reading scripture. Um, But I I think it's not, uh, we're viewing it through the lens of like, what makes the most sense in this service at this time one of the things that we do at menlo uh that i think is is pretty unique is that we will often associate a spiritual practice to a particular series uh and so you know we did uh, a whole series this fall uh called teach us how to pray where we were following the lord's prayer where jesus teaches his disciples how to pray And then we were modeling what does it look like to understand that as a liturgical framework for personal prayer. And so we like I even gave time in services of silence for people to be able to do that. I would argue that's sort of a form of modern liturgy. Um, And I think that there are uh, times where that's like a really easy thing to tie from one thing to another. Um, And then we'll do one in um christmas time really around scripture reading like what does it mean if you're not regularly reading the scriptures outside of services what does it mean to give people handles uh that help them navigate that well we're about to go into a series celebrating 150 years as a church and we're going to talk about the spiritual practice of celebration uh we're going to do some of that together and we're going to hopefully help people do that on their own And so, I, i think uh historically the church has done a very good job um, doing things like that in a service, but not as strong, helping people integrate it into their life. And, uh, my hope is that we can introduce people to those things and services, but really help them move the needle in experiencing some of that in their everyday life.
0: And recently you did a series called explore God in which many, many, many of the churches in the Bay area were gathering together to do the same kind of series. So how did that get started? I think you said 160 churches in the Bay Area were following the same. um, Yeah, yeah. So it's actually,
1: uh, I don't know the name of the organization that came up with it. I think it's in Texas. We didn't use their sermons. like They had it as dialed in as like, here's a manuscript if you want to just preach that manuscript. But we took the high level questions and then we made those per week and then built our own curriculum for discussion groups whether they were existing groups that took it on or all of our campuses really had explore God discussion groups that started up for people that wanted to just have a conversation in the midst of it. If they weren't a part of a group or if they were spiritually seeking, that was awesome. I mean, we had tons of people at campuses that choose to experience those. Uh, And then locally uh, there's a, uh, there's an organization called TBC, uh, TBC transforming the Bay for Christ. Uh, and that organization was really kind of the rallying point to try to bring all of these churches together and say, Hey, what if we all did this as one, right? There's, there's a few places in America that have never had a documented revival, uh, what we would consider like a big move of god where a bunch of people meet jesus and it starts to meaningfully change the culture and one of those places is the bay area and so i think we're just praying god would you would you do something like that here you know we want to be faithful and see it and we certainly need it uh mental health crisis is as bad as it's ever been um what it looks like for people trying to navigate income inequality socioeconomic divides pressure stress anxiety um, you know w- we need the hope of heaven in the hurts of this moment, I think maybe more than ever. Um, and so hopefully, hopefully the series moves the needle.
0: And did you get together with these other pastors from the other churches to have um uh, meetings or prayer times or anything in preparation for this? Or
1: so there were there were some gathering points for like worship and prayer before that were hosted mm-hmm. at different churches. And then pastors that I'm, you know, it'd be tough to get together with 160 speakers and come up with a message together, yeah. but pastors that I'm connected to, uh, we stayed in touch. Kind of leading up to and through the series together.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was a, a terrific idea. It was a terrific series. I learned a lot, and uh, <clears throat> I, I, I uh, always people ask me why are you in a Protestant church, <laughs> and and I always say, well, I mean, the church that I'm at is just great, especially in terms of the teaching and and the focus on community because community is like so important for people to have a place to put down roots and. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit about your approach to community?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, there's a line, it's kind of a tired ministry line, but circles are better than rows. And uh, when we think about church, we often think about rows. They're helpful. Uh, They're a great entry point for a lot of people. Now there's kind of a second set of rows, right? And that's the row of people watching online. Nobody comes to a church that they haven't experienced an online service of if they have one to watch first. Um, But, you know, at some point you go, Hey, I, I want to, maybe process this beyond just this experience. I want this to be more integrated into my life. And so at Menlo, we have what we call life groups. uh, And those life groups meet throughout the week. They meet in people's homes. Um, some of them are going to cover the content from the weekend, and they're going to try to go a little deeper and implement that into their life. Some of them are a little bit more life season and stage oriented. And so they're looking at things that maybe are really relevant to them as a young family or as empty nesters or what you know whatever that is. Um, but they are groups that are going to be people that kind of become your people. And we always want to be making room so that the next group of people that are ready to find their people can do it at Menlo because uh, well, a service or preaching or music may get somebody through the door. It's not going to keep them here because people don't stay at churches for music or messages. They stay at churches because it's their church, not because it's a program they attend. And so, uh, I think it's, it's the place where we see meaningful life change. You know, I hear people say lots of great stuff about cool weekend services and what God did to them in those moments and how special that is. Uh, but the real life change, when you listen to most of those stories is what happened next uh, you know, the, the person that God tied them up with the group that they got connected to. Uh, and I think at Menlo life groups allow us a great vehicle to be able to see that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's been very special for us. We've been part of a life group for about four years that meets at our home. And, uh, it's been great to not only, not only have the meetings, but become friends with each other, do social activities together, do ministry things together. And, um, it becomes a, an extension of family. And uh, I just feel like it's so important for everybody to have that experience.
1: Totally agree. And I think, you know, what churches used to do, like we did this, this is not a new thing in church world. Like we have a name for it, but lots of churches have it. I think what is so unique now is that just the idea of being in a room with people you don't know very well, yes, <laughs> committing to be in relationship with them, maybe sharing a meal, and continuing to show up, that is that is miraculous in 2023. Like, like if you're not a church person, I just think you, you want that, you need that, and you don't know how to get that. And so uh, I think more and more that distinctive of community around a mission um, that a church has, I think is going to become more and more unique and attractive in a culture that has less and less of it.
0: Well, the other unique thing about life groups is, it, it, particularly our life group, because the way we got together was that we went through the starting point point. Oh, sure. mm-hmm. and happened to be at the same table. Yeah. People we would have never met under any other circumstance and they weren't um, and aren't. We, we have very little in common outside of our our being together in this group. And yeah. and yet to learn to do life together with people of such diverse um, opinions and ideas. And that that to me is one of the great miracles of the whole thing. And it reminds me, maybe 10 years ago, my husband and I got involved in, uh, in uh, square dancing. And we only did it for about five years and then his job just got too intrusive. We didn't have time to get there. But when you go to square dancing, you meet all these people you'd never meet under any other circumstance in the world. And then you have to hold hands together. <laughs> yeah and you're holding hands and dancing and uh and that's a little bit what like a life group is it's it's putting yourself in a situation you'd never be in otherwise and then reaching out and touching somebody else and uh yeah so one of the things i'm really thankful for yeah yeah and are there any ideas that you're contemplating right now that aren't leading to another series but just things that you think about for your own personal um contemplation and intellectual interest or anything like that.
1: Yeah, I mean I think I spend a lot of time these days kind of pondering what does um what does the next election do to America? What does the next election do to the Ooh. church? Um
0: yeah.
1: You know, I, I uh the last time, you know, 2016 I think caught most people by surprise, uh even if you were voting Republican, you know, you, you, the the when all the primaries started to election night it was pretty wild to watch what took place um and i think there's the secondary impact of just the way we treated each other uh the way that misinformation and disinformation on both sides of the political spectrum became normative and then we watched that continue into 2020 exacerbated by a pandemic um i don't think that those divides have gone away and uh I think that churches are hopefully better and better prepared to have meaningful conversations about it. Uh, I try to s- sort of sprinkle in little subtweets about it all the time. <laughs> I try to say things like, hey, like we have people that are not just Republicans or not just Democrats in this church. That's a good thing. I'm glad that's the case. And um, if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you do not have the moral high ground like that is not true. These these subjects are way bigger than a, a political world can solve for them. Um, but I, I think uh, a, a significant part of the acceleration of the dechurching of America, I think, is when uh, it was really so many of the trends accelerated because of the political divide and the level of um, disenfranchisement that existed in our culture. Um, and I'm I'm just curious to see kind of what happens next with that and try to hopefully be a voice of hope and a voice of reason and a voice of conversation in a time and a place regionally where I think it would be so easy, uh, to just pile on and be another voice of vilification and anger. Um, these conversations matter, you know, like who we vote for matters. It really does. But if we communicate this in a way, um, that I believe more and I'm more passionate about who I'm voting for than if you're a personal person of faith, what you understand to be God's role in your life, I I would say you may, um, yeah, you you may be revealing that your politics are more than just a thing that you believe. Uh, it actually may be an idol in your life.
0: And are there any thinkers that you're following that are helping you navigate that?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, there's a couple podcasts. That I, yeah, that I really like. Um, there's a, a podcast called The Bulletin by Christianity Today that I think does a good job of wading into these issues. It's a Christian podcast, but um, in a l- little bit more intellectually honest way than. Um, I think we would sometimes, um, otherwise assume, uh, I always love when Malcolm Gladwell talks about this stuff. Cause I think he brings, uh, such a refined perspective to make sure we're taking things into historic context and not overreact. Um, there's a book, uh, that I really liked, uh, a couple years ago called live no lies by John Mark Comer. Uh, that I think from a faith perspective, nibbles at the edges of why some of where we are is where we are. And then that book I mentioned earlier, um, the coddling of the American mind, I think speaks to the extremes of this as well, to a certain degree. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we're going to see it and hear it more and more again. And then you add into that sort of the innovation of AI and the level of fake content that will sound true, um, and this isn't, you know, no one side politically is going to have the upper hand. I think we're going to see it get used maliciously by sort of both sides, by any any group of the extremes. Um, and so if we weren't doing very well decoding fact from fiction before that existed, I have concerns about how we're going to navigate it after.
0: So one last question I have for you, I guess, and uh, because I know your time is is limited, Um, when you hear the word reality, what do you think of?
1: Uh, I mean, I think of reality is the present circumstances, uh, the present circumstances of our world, um, in the tension between what God permits in brokenness and what i would call sin rebellion the fracturing of create of the created order because of that capacity and the ongoing work of god and the church to see his kingdom come his will be done on earth in this moment as it is in heaven so i think i think reality is not just that kingdom and it's not just this kingdom it's living in the tension of both
0: interesting I like how I do? <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And it was fun getting to know you a little bit better. It's going to certainly uh, flesh out a lot of the messages that I, I sit under you on Sunday morning. So
1: no, I really appreciate it. It's great. And like I said, honored to be asked and uh, yeah, if any of those books are helpful. Um, I uh, also, because I'm uh, dyslexic, most of these books if you're ever like oh man does he really read that many books some people do before i read a book if i really like it i've already listened to it like i listen to books all the time uh, it helps me process i'm an auditory learner anyway and then with dyslexia it's just been a really easy coping tool for me uh, to make sure that i'm continuing to process so all those ones that i've referenced are available online as well
0: well so c- talking about the, the the listening and the reading uh, are your messages by any chance uh, in transcript any place online that people can access them? Because- they are,
1: yeah. If you go to menlo.church and then you click on whatever series you want to look at, um, uh-huh. there'll be a thing that says like, watch the message and that, or there'll be a big play button to watch the message there'll be a small button that says study guide. And that's like what we make for life groups that are going to study it for that week. And then next to that, you'll see transcript. And so if you click that.
0: That is really good to know because there's a lot of times I'd like to go back over your one, one of your messages, but I don't have time to sit through the whole sure. thing. And I'd like to just go back and pick out parts. You, you don't it.
1: listen to my message three or four times a week. That is
0: heartbreaking.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, the transcript's available.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much, um, Pastor Bill. And uh, you have a wonderful week.
1: Thanks I look so much. Forward too. to Sunday morning. Sounds great.
0: Okay. Bye bye.